0: Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast I got tongue twisted there for a second This is your host, the OG Rob Silva And today, we will be reviewing the two fights that happened Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon Maurice Bredis defending his Cruiserweight Championship of the World Against Jai Opatia and then we'll be talking about Joyce Joe, Joe Joyce against Christian Hammer in a heavyweight matchup—a one-sided affair. It wasn't—it wasn't that one-sided, comparatively talent-wise. Hammer is not on Joyce's level, but it was much more competitive than what it should have been. I will then do on a second segment answer a bunch of questions from listeners all over the world. And the third installment of this podcast will be reading another installment Of my series of the 45 Greatest Fighters Of the last 45 years That you can currently read up to number 13 On the FightGameMediaNetwork.com website Um, Today I'll be talking about my number 33 fighter Of the last 45 years And that's Mexican legend Eric Morales But first... We will talk about Saturday's fights And we're going to start with What was a tremendous fight Shown Saturday morning In the United States Maurice Bredis Defending his title Down under Against Jai Opataya. Uh, Bredis was a huge Huge uh, Favorite And Opataya Fought a tremendous fight Fought a very disciplined fight And for the first Seven Eight rounds Opataya. Was uh, walking down, Bradis landing combinations, going inside and out. In the fourth round, landed a beautiful right uppercut that seemingly broke Bradis's nose. Somewhere early in the in the fight, Bradis broke Opataya's jaw. So Opataya fought the majority of the fight with a broken jaw, but that didn't stop him from dominating the first eight rounds and then beginning with the ninth round Bredis knowing that he could be losing his title as he had to have known he was getting outworked came on strong the last four rounds and made it a very close fight but Opatia wins and deservingly so and is now the man at cruiserweight. Now, I don't think he's the most talented cruiserweight in the world. I believe that's Lawrence Okoli. Now, I want to see a fight between Okoli and Opataya. That would be a tremendous fight. A great fight. And potentially one of the greatest cruiserweights matchups of all time. One it could be one of the greatest cruiserweight fights of all time. In my opinion, the two greatest cruiserweight fights of all time was Evander Holyfield's Iconic July 12th, 1986 victory over Dwight Muhammad Quarry to win the WBA Cruiserweight fight, fight uh, uh, title. You can read up on fightgaming.com my article on that fight. Just do a search. Just do an Evander Holyfield search and it'll, will, uh, it'll be one of the... It'll be one of the... The uh, articles that I've written about Evander Holyfield will pop up and click on it, read uh, My father and I watched that fight I was 18 years old We watched it on a small 13-inch color TV And we thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly loved that fight Greatest cruiserweight fight of all time And in my opinion, the second greatest cruiserweight title fight of all time Cruiserweight fight of all time, period Was James Tony's iconic victory in Nine two thousand and three over Vasily Jiroff and you that article is also available on fightgamemedia.com um, com because I give a total rundown of that fight in an article also. Now, on to the other fight that occurred Saturday. And we had Joe Joyce against an aging washed-up Christian hammer. Joe Joyce Is not no spring chicken himself Silver medalist but he's 36 years old So his inactivity has to end He's got to go for the gusto now He's 36 years old Let's forget about the Christian hammers of the world Let's start fighting real fighters Okay Now allegedly he beat a real fighter last year in Daniel Daniel Dubois Daniel Dubois is a one trick pony He is a sitting duck No defense um, One dimensional slugger Joe Joyce in his fight against Christian Hammer exhibited no defense whatsoever. Hammer hit him with several big shots. Now the announcing team which was horrific because they kept calling Joyce's right cross the right hook and you know how I hate when announcers cannot cannot call the correct punch. It's a right cross if a Orthodox fighter Is shooting Overhand right Not a right hook You fucking idiots Anyway Back to the fight Hammer was landing Right's and left's th- Throughout the first Two and a half rounds Joyce Didn't even try To get out the way Of those punches What happens when Tyson Fury Anthony Joshua Or Deontay Wilder Hits him with those Same type of Punching powers The announcer could Oh well, Joyce has the best Chin in the, div- the division he, oh, okay, so he stood up to Dubois' punching power and Christian, I don't hit like a hammer's punching power, right? But he's going he's gonna to stand up to De- Deontay Wilder, who has the most destructive right cross in boxing, or Tyson Fury, who has tremendous power in both hands, or Anthony Joshua, who has one-punch knockout power in both hands. He's going to stand up to those guys, right, if he fights the way he fights. Hell, hell effing no. Finally, at the end of the third round, uh, Joyce drops Hammer with a shot close to the back of the head. Um, it wasn't a back-to-head shot. I'll give Joyce the benefit of the doubt. And in the fourth round, he blasted Hammer before the referee finally stopped the fight. Joe Joyce with an expected win, but that defense is putrid. Uh, Joe Joyce, you're 36 years old and your defense is lacking. You are going to get the hell beaten out of you whenever you fight one of those top three fighters. Write it down here, all right? You're not beating Fury, you're not beating Wilder, and you're not beating Joshua, you're not beating Usek. Not unless you catch him. You have to catch him. We'll see. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we get into the question part of the podcast the questions i'm getting from my email and getting robertsilver57 at hotmail.com um, i was dm'd also on twitter robertsilver5768 and the hashtag ask rob silver on twitter so uh three places where i received questions i've received a bunch i'm trying to answer as many as i can and the first question is actually a statement uh from my my longtime friend Malcolm on Twitter. And Malcolm writes to me, Bam Bam Rodriguez might be the best flyweight that I've ever seen. He literally can do it all. Yes, Malcolm, he could do it all. Bam Rodriguez is a great boxer puncher. With that soft pause stance, he can box you from the outside. He gives you angles. He goes inside, in and out. He'll go to the body and then come right back. Jabs to the body, throws a combination, come back, comes back out. He has all the skills, Malcolm, to possibly one day be the greatest flyweight of all time. Right now, I've been watching boxing since 1977. So in 46 years, there are three flyweights that I've seen that are definitely definitively better than bam but that's because bam's only 22 years old bam just started and he's already the boogey- boogeyman of the super flyweight division and he's talking about going down to flyweight going back down to flyweight to fight a julio cesar martinez or a sunny edwards the three flyweights i've seen that are better than bam in my opinion Mark Two Sharp Johnson, go back to last week's podcast. I read a historic profile on him. He's my 34th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Nayoa Inui, the greatest Japanese fighter of all time. And Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, who is a prospective future opponent for Bam Rodriguez. Now that's not that's not degrading Bam at all. He's only 22 years old. He's if he continues to progress the way he's progressing He has the natural ability, Malcolm To Overtake those three uh, legendary fighters And we're talking The second greatest fighter ever to come out of Nicaragua Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez The greatest fighter ever to come out of Japan Nayo Noi, And the greatest African American flyweight That ever fought in Mark 2 Sharp Johnson So it's a heavy heavy order for Bam Rodriguez, but he's got the talent and the sky's the limit. So um, that's the question from um, Brother Malcolm. And Brother Malcolm is a loyal listener, and we always chat on Twitter. One of the dudes that I love talking on, tw- on Twitter about boxing. Now, on to my fellow Puerto Rican, my, my fellow Boricua brother, Jesus Salas from PR, And Jesus asked asked me A very very strong question He asks me You have absolute power For one day to change boxing What do you do? Jesus one day is not enough So for the 24 hours That if I ever was in charge of boxing What I would do in those 24 hours First of all I wouldn't sleep I'd have a ton of uh, lemonade To keep me up Uh, And what I would do is the first thing I would do is abolish all the criminal alphabet organizations, the WBA, WBC, IBF, WBO, and ABC, uh, CBS, XYZ, you name it, they gotta go. You gotta go. I would strip everybody of their world titles, and I would come up with a committee to vote Committee of of boxing historians and experts on my level to vote the top four fighters in each division and mandate that they fight each other with the with, with the winners facing each other. And then for each division, you have one world champion. That would be my first step. Second step I would do if I was in complete control of boxing is to regulate. And make sure that these fights with the Paul brothers, with aging 50-something-year-old fighters like Evander Holyfield, James Tony, Roy Jones, and Mike Tyson, that these fights would no longer be allowed to be sanctioned. They made illegal. And if a promoter tried to put either Paul brother in the ring with a celebrity, that that promoter would get indicted on charges, right? And fined heavily and those fighters willingly participate in those fights are barred from ever being part of any type of boxing event um, whether they promote a fight you couldn't they couldn't even buy a ticket to a goddamn arena all right get rid of the circus acts that's another thing i would have done in my 24 hours of being in control of boxing and um those are the two main things. I there's a whole lot that I can do, but I think if you start with disbanding the alphabet organizations, mandating that the top 4 fighters as voted by boxing historians and experts all over the world are put in a tournament and they must participate. Let me backtrack a second. If a promoter says, "No, I'm not putting my fighter in that in that bracket," well, if you are voted among the top four fighters in the world and your promoter says he's not fighting in that tournament, you will be automatically suspended by my counsel for, for one year. You couldn't fight for one year. Either you fight the best or you go fucking home, right? Okay. And, of course, getting rid of all the boxing organizations and barring celebrity boxing because there's going to be a murder one day. Somebody's going to get hurt. And then... All these so-called media pundits who criticized me. Last year, they were criticizing me. That uh, Fightful.com and all these other guys, uh, Michael Coppinger and Michael Benson. What's what's your problem, man? This is good for boxing. It gets the young audience involved. Jake Paul, in his last fight, did 65,000 pay-per-view buys, all right? Motherfuckers, young people are not getting into boxing Because these two video game goofballs Are boxing uh, Zombies and and, and and UFC fighters That never stepped into a ring as a boxer Get that bullshit off my television And other than this question I will never ever Legitimize Those clown shows By talking about it on this podcast I mean, get that shit out of my face Alright Thank you, Jesus, for that great question. Now, let me get another. We got we got a bunch of questions here. See what we have up here. Okay, from uh, my phil from uh, my listener from Philadelphia, Rob Hill, Sugar Hill Gang. What's up, Rob? He asked, Rob, where would you place Floyd Mayweather amongst the four kings? Floyd Mayweather is on the same level historically athletically as, um, and fight fighting-wise, as Marvelous Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, and Roberto Duran. You can make an argument that he's greater than all four of them. I won't say who I think is the greatest of those, of those five because I'm doing a series of articles in which all five men will be talked about. Now, I will say this because the next article is coming out. No, I'm not even going to say because I didn't I didn't count the first ten years of his his career. But if you're looking at their their careers in entirety, Floyd holds his own against those other four based on what he's done his career, based on his skill set, based on his accomplishments. Floyd Mayweather is the greatest fighter of the 21st century. I don't want to hear this nonsense. Oh, well, Manny Pacquiao, Manny Pacquiao. no. Manny Pacquiao, Canelo, no. First of all, how are you gonna put Canelo and Manny above Floyd when he dominated both of them the times he faced both of them? Floyd Mayweather, greatest fighter of the 21st century, bar none, and as far as those, the four kings, Hearns, Duran, Leonard, and Hagler, he's on their level. You can make an argument for any of those five men being the best of those five. And and I'll leave it at that because I don't want to spoil where I have those five men ranked In my list of the 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years Now on to other questions I got a bunch now from my brother from New Orleans Terrence Terrence what's up big man Terrence like I told you in private when the next time I do visit uh, New Orleans You and I Going to attend the Saints game. I haven't been to New Orleans since 1990, so I'm over 30 years, 32 years, so I'm overdue to visiting the Big Easy. Terrence asks, why doesn't Regis Progress get any championship shots? Who in the criminal cartels has he pissed off? Low. I don't know what the hell's going on with the WBA, WBC, IBF, WBO, ABC, CBS, XYZ, etc. How... Regis Prograce Outside of Josh Taylor Is the best junior welterweight in the world But yet Josh Taylor just gave up two of his four titles First of all Josh Taylor doesn't want to fight Jack Catterall Because Catterall embarrassed him and was robbed In his fight against Taylor And Taylor's not taking another chance Against Catterall He doesn't want to give Regis Prograce a rematch Even though Prograce gave Taylor hell in a fight That even though I did have Taylor win There were several close rounds And it could have gone either way Okay, That fight wasn't a dominating win by Taylor. That fight was a great fight that could have gone either way. Prograce, that fight happened in 2019. Three years later, and Prograce hasn't gotten a rematch? Prograce is not fighting for either vacated belt? What the fuck is going on here? Explain this to me. all right? Regis Prograce is the most duck fighter in the world today, and it has to stop. Now, Josh Taylor is making excuses not to defend his title. Okay, He doesn't want to give Catterall a rematch. He gives up one of the belts. Um, he was supposed to fight Jose Cepeda. He's giving up that belt because he's claiming, oh, well, I don't have the time of getting married. Who in, in the history of boxing, how many fighters vacated the title because they decided to go on a wedding and on a honeymoon? Motherfucker, go get married on a, on a Saturday. Go on a trip, come back the following Friday, and get get into training and fight five to six weeks from now. What the hell is so difficult about that? Man, Josh Taylor, go the fuck away, all right? Move up to 147 and get blasted by Boots, Spencer Crawford, and that'll be the end of your career because you will take such a beating by any of those three fighters that you will never be the same. Thank you, Terrence, for that great question. Great question. All right, now I got a question from... Long-time listener Eddie, let me pick up Eddie's uh, question. All right, Eddie. Eddie asks, nice guy Eddie on Twitter, by the way, and Eddie is a real nice guy. Eddie asks, why is it that there aren't more boxers like George Kambosos, a guy who might not be the best or have the natural talent, but you could tell he puts his all into the training. On the flip side, you got a guy with more raw talent like Ryan Garcia, who seemingly has a hard enough time just making it into the gym. How much you say is just raw talent versus training? Eddie, to be the greatest of the greats, you have to have both the raw talent and you have to have an an undying love for the sport and a work ethic second to none. That separates the greatest of all time from guys with similar ability who pissed it all away by being lazy and not being disciplined. I talked about Floyd Mayweather earlier. Floyd Mayweather didn't drink, didn't smoke. He was in the gym at 2 o'clock in the morning. He was doing real work at 2 o'clock in the morning. When Muhammad Ali was Cassius Clay and... Muhammad Ali from 1960 to 1967 Before he was unjustifiably Stripped of his World Heavyweight Championship And not allowed to fight Barred from boxing Put into exile, a forced exile Angelo Dundee said he never trained A fighter who loved to be in the gym Who loved to train, who loved to do Road work, Ali was Always, and being that Ali Was a devoted Muslim He wasn't drinking, he wasn't smoking He was while he was joking and making fun of Howard Cosell and his opponents and, I mean, the greatest promo man in the history of the sport He took fighting seriously and he busted his ass Sugary Leonard, before he retired the first time, was always hard working in the gym Marvelous Marvin Hagler used to lock himself inside a prison cell and train for all his fights throughout his professional career even more so when he became the undisputed middleweight champion of the world. Those guys separate themselves from a Ryan Garcia and a George Cambosas. George Cambosas has a great work ethic. And so that's why he became a lightweight champion of the world. But he doesn't have the physical attributes that will make him competitive uh competitive against a Shakur Stevenson and you saw against Devin Haney no because he doesn't have the talent but he could beat a Ryan Garcia because Ryan Garcia does not take the sport of boxing seriously at all Ryan Garcia is close to becoming like Adrian Broner Adrian Broner had all the natural ability in the world he's pissed it away because he was out there drinking um Rumors of uh, of drug use, out in the strip clubs 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, throwing $20 bills down toilet bowls, not training, take, uh, taking his God-given talent for granted. And now he's a washed-up caricature of what he used to be. Can't beat anybody. He can't beat any elite fighter in the world. He never will. I know there's a lot of fans out there. Wake the fuck up. Adrian Brona is toast. He's done. He throws five punches around. You cannot beat any great fighter throwing five punches around. It's a wrap. Bye-bye, Brona. Great question, Eddie. As always, I love interacting with Eddie on Twitter. Twitter and, um, and and, and um, through his emails and DMs. Okay. I, oh. Question from my brother, Carl. Carl. Um. Carl who listens to all my programs Throughout all my podcasts That I do through several platforms Here's the question That Carl has Question for the podcast about the Motor City Cobra, the great Thomas Hitman Hearns with a piston-like jab and power In both hands Hearns' Achilles at that time was his stamina and chin And he only lost five freaking fights Do you think he would have Been even more dangerous if he had Worked on his scrawny legs Do you think that may increased May have increased his stamina and made his already vaunted punching power even more lethal. And would, would that have made a difference in a couple or maybe even all of those losses? Great questions all wrapped up into one, uh, Carl. Carl, Thomas Hearns w- was like a lot of great fighters with that type of freakish height for their weight classes. Alexis Arguello was a featherweight at ten. Thomas Hearns was a welterweight at six foot one. Bob Foster was a a light heavyweight at six foot four. All those guys had very skinny legs. But their height helped when they sat down and threw their right hands. And all three had lethal right crosses. Uh, All three had Deontay Wilder type right cross. Deontay Wilder, a perfect example of heavyweight. Six foot seven. 215 220 maybe when he's in shape skinny skinny legs but him being so much taller helped the arch in his right cross we're talking four, maybe the four greatest right hands in the history of boxing all right so uh no the strengthening his legs wouldn't have helped his punching power because Hearns had it from being so damn tall and sitting down on his punches but skinny legs did hurt him in his fight against Sugar Ray Leonard in the first fight, because Leonard hurt him early, sixth round, in the first fight to the body. Hearns' um, legs did a did a did a dance. Uh, he got battered in the seventh round. He was able to survive and he began boxing and dominating the fight with his jab. But his stamina got in the way. I don't think leg strength would have helped with stamina. Hearns never had great stamina, but It's a falsehood that Hearns had a bad chin because the dudes that knocked out Hearns all had great punching power. Sugar Ray Leonard was one of the greatest punches in the history of the welterweight division. He knocked out Hearns. At middleweight, Marvin Hagler, one of the greatest punches in boxing history, knocked out Hearns. Iran Barkley, who was very limited, he was a a brawler, had great punching power in both hands. And by the way, this is a great segue. I have a... uh, Fight Game Media has a Patreon uh, podcast uh, service that the link is in the the link is in the description of this podcast. For five dollars a month, you could listen to exclusive programming on AEW, WWE, Impact, MLW, NWA, UFC, Bellator, and as far as boxing goes, I have a monthly podcast. Centering centering around the greatest upsets in boxing history. I'm about to record the newest one that will come out sometime this week or next week on the upset the night that Iran Barkley beat Thomas Hearns and I will thoroughly dissect that fight. The fight was from June 6 1988. Hearn's at the time was the WBC middleweight champion of the world. He was defending his title against Iran Barkley. I will talk about that in enormous upset in full detail. So this was a great segue. Now back to Thomas Hearns. So he lost, Bar- he, lost he lost to he lost to Barkley. He lost a he lost to Hagler. He lost to Leonard. He lost to Barkley in a rematch at light heavyweight where both were past their primes. And his loss, God damn, his loss against Uriah Grant. In 2001, uh, Hearns had no business in the ring. He was way past his prime. And even in that fight, he was winning the fight, but uh, he injured his ankle and he had to quit on the stool because his ankle was shot, I believe in the third round. So strength strength for leg, I don't think would have helped with his stamina or, or his chin. And his chin was not that bad. It wasn't a, he just got knocked out by great punches. He got caught at the right time. He allowed himself to get into a firefight with Marvin Hagler. Barkley caught him, and Sugar Ray was desperate and had worn the body down enough that Hearns was susceptible late in the fight to getting knocked out. So, um, Carl, I don't think that would have been a factor in in, um, any of those losses because he got caught. The stamina, though, is key. And the one division where, in my opinion, no fighter in the history of boxing other than Mike McCollum could have beaten Thomas Hearns was 154 pounds, junior middleweight. You can go to the thefightgamemedia.com and look at my series of articles on the greatest fighters in the history of that division. I have Hearns number one, and you can read the entire article, and, and I point why. And real quickly, I will point out why, but save most of it for... The episode when I talk about Hearns amongst the greatest fighters of all time on this podcast when I do his historical profile Hearns at 154 made the weight easily His power was was, was still Lethal The most powerful punch in history 154 pound division the greatest left jab in history of the 154 pound division and he dominated everybody he fought at 154. He outboxed Wilfred Benitez, master boxer, one of the greatest defensive fighters of all time. Put Roberto Duran asleep, something Sugar Ring Lennon and Marvin Hagler couldn't do. He was impossible to beat at 154, and a fight between him and McCollum would have been lethal because McCollum was the type of fighter that'd give anybody problems because he went to the body with abandon, and I could see him... Being very difficult for Hearns to beat. I also see Hearns being difficult for McCollum to beat because of that great jab. McCollum had problems with great boxes. Donald Curry gained problems for four and a half rounds before he get before getting caught by that left hook and getting knocked out. Sumbu Kalame gave him difficulty twice. Beat him the first time and barely, and McCollum barely beat him in a rematch. He was a swift boxer. Hearns' jab would have gave McCollum's problem. That would have been an incredible fight, and it should have happened. It didn't happen. They were two of the top 10 fighters in the world holding the two versions of the alphabet titles at 154 McCollum WBA Hearns WBC and neither one fought each other So that that's, that's a damn crime One of the fights that should have happened That never happened So Carl great question as always man Carl appreciate you bro Now I've got a question From Bilal From LA he gave me a bunch of questions So Bilal I'm only going to answer two Due to time constraints because I want to get One more question in but uh, let me go to Bilal. And he goes, the first question is a great question. Greatest fighters to come out the 90s, a great decade of legends and all the weight classes. To be honest, people don't give that era in boxing love. Um, um, contraire, Contraire Bilal, that era is highly regra- regarded by many experts as being the greatest era in boxing history. I wouldn't say it. I'd put it well, behind the 80s. Because in the 1980s, you had legends upon legends, but the 90s is, is there. It's close. It's close. And I can see why people would make a argument for the 90s. Uh, my top five from the 90s, real quick, off the top of my head, I got Roy Jones at number one, Lennox Lewis at number two, Felix T- uh, Tito Trinidad at number three, Pernell Whitaker at number four, and... um. Yeah. Ricardo Lopez at number five, those are my five greatest fighters of the '90s off the top of my head. And, um, I apologize if I didn't mention any of your favorites out there, but those five guys were dominant, okay? Those five guys were beast, right? Roy Jones Jr. was the greatest fighter me or my father ever saw ever enter a ring between 1994 and 2003. Okay. for a 10-year period, I never saw a greater fighter for those 10 years, right? Number two that I have, Lennox Lewis, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time, one of the greatest left jabs in boxing history, and he beat everybody he ever fought. Even the two guys that knocked him out, he came back and he beat them convincingly in the rematch. Felix Tito Trinidad had one of the most dominant welterweight title reigns in the history of boxing he held the title for seven years from 1993 to 2000 and other than his performance against Oscar De La Hoya which I thought he lost Trinidad did not come close to losing any of those fights he he totally cleaned out the division and after he beat De La Hoya um, the the, the judges robbed De La Hoya Uh, other than a rematch with De La Hoya which he should have taken he moved up to junior middleweight super welterweight so He's he's my number three. Number four, Pernell Whitaker, one of the three greatest defensive fighters in the history of the sport. Um, he dominated, in the 90s, he dominated the lightweight division and a portion of his welterweight. He was the welterweight champion of the world for four years, from 93 to 97, when he lost a very disputed decision to Oscar De La Hoya when Pernell was past his prime. Now, Pernell was the how do you say it? Uh, exception to the rule of a great fighter being even greater had he trained because Purnell had a tendency to drink and use cocaine. God bless the the dull, the, the the dead. Purnell died way too soon. He died three years ago. I have the utmost respect for Purnell Whitaker and his family. I'm just going to say this without besmirching uh, the brilliant brother who who's the same age as me. He died the same age I am, 54. So I, I I bless I bless life every morning I wake up because too many of my people from my generation are dying younger than me around my same age. Pernell, when he was right, he was unbeatable. Pernell number four and Ricardo Lopez number five, retired undefeated, great great straw weight straw weight and junior flyweight, and he was a perfect boxer with the way he 44 fought. He fought tall at five foot five behind a booming jab and crunching power in both hands. And he didn't brawl. He boxed you and then he knocked you out. He didn't look for the knockout. He let that knockout come to him. So Bilal, a uh, great question on that. Let me see. We got one more question from um, Bilal. Top five fighter that got the biggest heart, no quitting him, just a dog and he and he cites Matthew Sal Muhammad Matthew Sadomhow is definitely one of the top five uh fighters with the biggest hearts um you'd also have to put uh Muhammad Ali there because after Muhammad Ali's uh skills declined after his forced exile, he lost his step. And he had the only way he could have beaten Norton, Frazier, and Foreman was a great heart and a great chin. So Muhammad Ali, definitely a top five. Vinny Pazienza. Vinny Pazienza is the perfect example of of what uh, Eddie brought up with, with his question. A guy with not the greatest natural ability, but with huge, huge. A huge work ethic Vinny Pazienza almost died And had his neck broken Came back and became uh, A junior middleweight champion of the world Right Vinny Pazienza was a tough son of a bitch And one of the top five fighters With the most heart Another guy I want to throw out there Is uh, Emmanuel Augustus Formerly known as Emmanuel Burton He fought everybody Got robbed several places And Floyd Mayweather always said That that was his toughest fight Emmanuel Augustus had Phenomenal heart Phenomenal heart And of course uh, Matthew Saad Muhammad So let's see I mentioned I mentioned uh, Ali Saad Muhammad Emmanuel Augustus Vinny Pazienza Who would I mention as my Fifth fighter with the The greatest heart Probably uh, Bobby Chacon Bobby Chacon went through hell And back his wife uh, Committed suicide while Bobby Chacon Was still fighting came back And fought wars with Cornelius Bose Edwards Um he, he did his best against Boomo Mancini Even though he was past his prime And if you look at Chacon's career He had wars with most of the Great junior lightweights of his era So yeah I would give Bobby Chacon number 5 The schoolboy from um california now on to the final question for this segment of the of the podcast and this is a non this is a non boxing related uh, a question but i gotta give my brother props he's from the greatest entertainment family probably the greatest family in pop culture history from the great city of mount vernon mount vernon north to me north of me from a from um, Harlem. Um and I grew up in the Bronx. So Mount Mount Vernon is the unofficial sixth borough of New York City. First question, grap question is from Grap Lover, whose brother is one of the two greatest producers of all time. With people of uh, hip hop. When people ask me who are the greatest producers in the history of hip hop, I say, Well, there's two guys fighting for it and everybody else is battling for third. One A and one B of Pete Rock Grapp's brother And DJ Premier right? um, And Grapp and Pete's cousin Is one of my favorite MC's of all time A guy that no one has a bad thing To say about probably The greatest man The greatest human being ever In the history of hip hop And that's Dwight Myers A.K.A. Heavy D Okay so um, I'm honored that Pete Rock and Heavy D's Incredible, incredible Ken Is asking me a couple of questions Okay, Grap goes Peace Rob, I hope you don't mind me posting my question But I have a simple sports question What do you think kept Allen Iverson From a ring? Big salute and respect from Four Square miles, The area of Mount Vernon Where uh, him, Heavy, and um, Pete Rock Grew up around Alright, Grapp, once again man Much respect to you and your family man Love your family, Grap Lover. Follow him on on Twitter. Uh, producer, MC. He's been in, he's been in his game now for damn near forty years, <laughs> and he's younger than me. <laughs> Grap Lover in the house. All right, Grap. W- uh, what kept AI from a ring? That's easy. Philly management. AI had to carry a team on his back his entire career. Period. Period. End of story. Okay. Never Alan Iverson had the same problem in Philly that Patrick Ewing and Grapp, you would you would appreciate this because you're a lifelong Knicks fan. Patrick never got help in New York until the very end of his career when they got Allen Houston, Latrell Sprewell, Marcus Camby, late in Ewing's career. But from 19 when as a rookie in 1985, him and Bernard King were always hurt, so they never got to play each other his rookie year, second year, Bernard went to Washington to play for the Bullets, and Ewing from 1986, for a brief minute, we had Rod Strickland, the Knicks had Rod Strickland, and they traded him instead of Mark Jackson. I would have loved to have seen what Ewing and Strickland together with that pick and roll would have done with Rod as the starting point guard, and and Ewing as a starter team, we never got to see that because they got rid of Strickland his second year in the league for a washed-up Maurice Cheeks. And then um, for years, John Starks was the second best player and Starks, while a great man, is not a number two on a championship team. No, he can't be. When you finally got Spreewell in Houston at the and can at the end. Patrick was past his prime, still with the heart of a lion. And Patrick did his thing. And Grapp would also appreciate this because Grap A is a Nick fan and Grap B is a proud Jamaican like Patrick Ewing. So uh, shout out to you, Grap. Nick management didn't get Patrick any real help until the end of his career. Philly never got AI any help throughout his entire career. They were getting Derek Coleman, who was washed up. Jerry Stackhouse, who played the same positions as AI, so they had to get rid of Stackhouse, all right? Andre Ugadala, who's an unselfish player. Andre is a great role player. He's not a number two option on the team, as proven when he went to Golden State. He defined his role as a guy coming off the bench, playing great defense, and giving you much-needed minutes as a six-man. He wasn't your second option. When AI went to Denver, he gelled with Carmelo, but the West was so stacked that they couldn't get out the first round. So uh, that's why AI never won a title, is because Philly management, especially... uh billy king did not know what the hell they were doing they had a commodity in ai and they did not surround him with the right parts to win a championship All right and there were a lot of guys that wanted to play for ai they never went and and got those horses now for the final question of the of this segment from grap grap asked who do you think is the most important sports figure to come out of mount vernon your hometown Grap, and grab I got to go with Ray Williams older brother Gus Williams Gus Williams was a beast in Mount Vernon in college and with the Seattle SuperSonics the year that the Sonics went to the to the two back-to-back finals 1978 when they lost in seven games to the Washington Bullets and in 1979 when they beat the Bullets to win their the the Franchises is only world championship Only NBA title And now that franchise is in Oklahoma City And Oklahoma City won't be seeing the title Anytime soon So that's going to be the only banner They'll be hanging up in the rafters Gus Williams was the number one option on that team A team that was a tremendous team With Paul Silas, Jack Sigma Dennis Johnson Dennis Johnson and Gus Williams One of the greatest backcourts never talked about Gus Williams was a beast And Grapp, I know you started watching basketball around that time, so I'm not sure if you got to see Gus. I got to see Gus in his prime because I started watching in 77. Grapp, I think you might have started in 79, 1980. You can correct me because I know you were a Knicks fan from the jump, and I know you had to have been a big Ray Williams fan because he's from your hometown, and he was drafted and played for the Knicks for a few years. But his brother Gus was that dude, and Gus was a huge— Put it this way, Sonics don't win a championship if it wasn't for Gus. Gus averaged for those two years, I believe, during the uh, regular season, damn near 25 points per game. Gus Williams was a beast. And we want to talk about other great Mount Vernon um, athletes. Damian Eastley, who was a tremendous baseball player. Uh, you have uh, the, the McRae brothers, Rodney and Scooter. Scooter McRae was an incredible high school basketball player, but broke his leg at Louisville, and he never recovered. He never got back the, um, um, His leg strength From What he had before he broke his leg And Roddy McRae was a workman Like power forward who gave you Tough rebounds, tough defense And would get those Offensive rebounds when needed You know, he was a tough dude McRae brothers, but out of all those Guys I mentioned, in my opinion Gus Williams Now, ladies and gentlemen I thank all those great questions on to the final segment of the podcast. And now on to my 33rd greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And by the way, I have failed to mention this. I'm going to mention it now before I forget again. On the Fight Game Media YouTube page, you have links to some of these articles that I've read on the podcast in video form meaning this segment alone will be eventually uploaded to the fight game media YouTube uh, page so go to YouTube type in fight game media and not only do you see some of my uh, historic profiles that I've mentioned on this podcast but several great podcasts and excerpts from other members of the fight game media staff JD Olivo Garrett gonzalez john Larocca, and mike gilbert uh, and of course the legendary justin nipper and um fumi saito all right now on to my article the, the, my 33rd greatest fighter of the last 45 years el terrible eric morales was the epitome of a cerebral assassin at five foot eight morales dwarfed Dwarfed practically every one of his opponents at 122 pounds Fighting from the outside with a lethal left jab And bone crushing power in both hands Morales had a style similar to the Nicaraguan legend Alexis Arguello Until his final fight at 122 pounds In his epic first encounter with his greatest rival Marco Antonio Barrera Morales was almost invincible at 122 pounds At 126 and 130 pounds Morales, although not as dominating, more than earned his ranking as the 33rd greatest fighter of the last 45 years. After winning his first 26 bouts, 20 of which were by knockout, the 21-year-old Mexican prodigy prodigy earned the WBC number one ranking at 122 and a shot at the three-time reigning champion and fellow countryman Daniel Saragoza on September 6, 1997. This was the ultimate crossroads fight between an up-and-coming fighter versus an older, wily great. The fight not only showcased all of Morales' sublime offensive skills, but it also proved the superior guts, chin, and stamina he possessed before finally knocking out the crafty Zaragoza in the 11th round. The 122-pound torch had officially been passed. After his title victory over Zaragoza, Morales breezed through his first three defenses of his WBC title before defending his title on September 12th, 1998 against two-time conqueror of fellow countrymen and rival Barrera. And that was Brooklyn's own Junior Jones. Jones was the first fighter who Morales did not tower over as both stood at five foot eight. Jones was one of my personal favorite fighters of all time, and I really thought that he had a legit shot at upsetting the red hot, the red hot El Terrible. My father was a huge fan of Jones as well, but reminded me that Jones, who who reminded us so much of Thomas Hearns in his fighting style, had stamina and chin issues that would work against him against the steely-chinned and tireless champion. The first three rounds saw Jones fight Morales to a standstill on two occasions. Jones landed crushing right crosses That bounced off Morales' chin And didn't move or hurt the champion at all Then in the fourth round Jones, already visibly exhausted Engaged Morales in a firefight That resulted in Jones being dropped once And after getting up from the knockdown Battered unmercifully by Morales Before referee Larry O'Connell stopped the fight With scant few seconds left in the fight In the fourth round At 22, Morales had become scary great after another relatively easy three defenses, Morales faced the always tough, sturdy, and energetic former bantamweight champion from Ireland, Wayne McCullough, October 22, 1999. McCullough was a gr- was a gritty brawler who also possessed a granite chin and endurance that rivaled the future Mexican icon. Morales fought a brilliant tactical fight by using his superior height and boxing skills to win a decisive unanimous decision. Morales next fight would be the greatest fight ever to occur between two Mexican fighters on February 19, 2000 Morales faced the aforementioned Barrera in a super bantamweight title unification fight as Barrera was the reigning WBO champion Morales won a highly disputed split decision which saw him get visibly late the fight before getting knocked down in the 12th round for the first time in his career after nine successful defenses of his Super Bantamweight title Morales, who in my opinion received a gift decision Decided it was time to move up in weight to featherweight After winning his first three fights at 126 pounds Morales secured a shot at WBC title holder Goody Espada Jr. Jr. Goody Espada Jr. On February 17, 2001 Morales Defended against Barrera No, I'm sorry Morales struggled in the first half of the fight before outfighting a spotters down the stretch of the fight to win a 12-round decision and his second world title. After one defense, Morales defended against Barrera in a highly anticipated rematch, which took place June 22, 2002. This time, Morales didn't exchange a toe-to-toe action. Instead, he wisely chose to box on the downside and control the action. Unfortunately, the judges once again erred in their scoring of the fight. Barrera won a decision that was as highly disputed as their first fight when Morales was given the decision. Barrera quickly vacated the WBC title he won for Morales, and five months later, Morales defeated Pauli Ayala to regain the WBC 126-pound crown. Three fights later, Morales moved up to 130 in search of his third world, World Weight Division title. On February 28, 2004, Morales defeated the rugged Jesus Chavez to win the WBC Super Featherweight title and his third weight division title. After a a successful defense, Morales and Barrera engaged in their third and final fight of their iconic trilogy. In another scintillating contest, Barrera defeated Morales in the only fight of the trilogy I felt the judges got correct. Morales then agreed to fight the hottest fighter in boxing at the time, the Filipino sensation, Manny Pacquiao. On on March 19, 2005, Morales faced Pacquiao in a fight many expected to be another devastating win by Manny. Morales was considered an old 28-year-old fighter whose skills looked to have declined due to his wars with Pereira. Instead of being food for Manny's Tasmanian Devil-style offense, Morales put on a textbook display of boxing from the outside, countering Manny's high-octane offense. Morales went on to win a very decisive decision to win the biggest fight of his career. It would also be the final great night of his career. Six months later, just nine days after his 29th birthday, Morales looked very slow and old against the slick boxer Zaire Raheem. Raheem completely dazzled and out-slicked Morales to win an easy 12-round decision. Instead of hanging it up, Morales fought two more fights with Pacquiao in 2006. In both fights, Morales was obliterated by Manny's speed and power, getting knocked out both times. At the age of 30, Morales was fighting like a 40-year-old man. Morales kept fighting, and because of the WBC's blatant bias towards Mexican fighters, the criminal cartel that they are, Morales was gift-wrapped the WBC 140-pound title when he defeated the less-than-stellar Pablo Cesar Cano. Finally, after being dealt two beatings at the hands of Danny Garcia in 2012, the now 36-year-old El Terrible finally retired for good, finishing with an outstanding record of 52-9 with 36 knockouts. Morales would have landed much higher on my list if he hadn't lost 7 of his last 11 fights Despite the amount of losses at the end of his career, it doesn't dilute his greatness at 122 pounds and his wins over Pacquiao, Barrera, Saragoza, and Jones It is why I consider him the 33rd greatest fighter of the last 45 years Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation with the questions on this week's program. Thank you for being loyal listeners. Thank you for the great feedback that you give me on social media and via email. And for all of you listening, all you out there in the world, be blessed and be a blessing.